wonderful people. We would like to welcome you to another episode of Spill the Tea Tuesdays. My name is Milo and I'm the lead sexual assault case advocate here at the YWCA. Hey, I'm Timber and I'm the lead domestic violence nurse examiner advocate here at the YWCA. Um, Today we're going to take you on a historical journey through time to highlight the legislative milestones that have occurred thus far and then transition into discussing action steps that we can take now or that prepare for the future. Because while, yes, we have come very far in acknowledging that sexual abuse crimes happen, we have a long way to go in the realm of holding offenders accountable. Uh, Speaking of holding people accountable, did you hear the most recent news about yet another NFL player being accused of sexual assault? Gasp! You mean to tell me a professional athlete is being accused of sexual misconduct? Could you hear the sarcasm in my voice? According to the most recent article published by the New York Times, Houston Texans star quarterback Deshaun Watson has had the pleasure of having 16 lawsuits filed against him as of today. The allegations against Mr. Watson include various forms of assault, sexual assault, of course, being the most prevalent. Rusty Harden is the current legal representative for Mr. Watson and recently made a social media post defending his client, stating that the allegations against his client were meritless and equated two of the sexual assault lawsuits to be blackmail attempts. What makes the basis for these assault allegations to be meritless? 16 women have come forward thus far. How many more need to come forward to meet his definition of having merit? What is merit and why is one woman's word not enough? Definitely think that's something I want our listeners to consider um, as we continue our discussion. Um, But before we talk about sexual assault legislation more in depth, I think we should go over some legal definitions related to sexual assault. Uh, This will help give an insight into what terms are being used and how they're being used. So, for example, just because someone is sexually assaulted does not mean their specific case is defined by federal or state law. However, there have been alterations in legal definitions over the years in an attempt to better serve survivors of sexual assault. For example, Prior to 2013, the definition of rape was, quote, the carnal knowledge of a female, forcibly and against her will, unquote. So I'm going to let that simmer for one second. There are obviously several points to make about the validity of this definition, and we could easily pick apart each word here. Uh, But the point I want to make is that definitions can and do change for the better. So the current definition for rape is, quote, Penetration, no matter how slight of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim, unquote. So this is an improvement from the last definition, um, as we can tell, but there is certainly always room to grow and learn as our society and culture changes. Um, Now we can go into some of the definitions um, that I mentioned earlier. So first I have force. Force shall mean any force, no matter how slight, necessary to accomplish the act without the consent of the victim. The force necessary to constitute an element need not be actual physical force, since fear, fright, or coercion may take place 
of actual physical force. Consent means the affirmative, unambiguous, and voluntary agreement to engage in a specific sexual activity during a sexual encounter, which can be revoked at any time. Consent cannot be given by an individual who is asleep or mentally or physically incapacitated, either through the effects of drug or alcohol or for any other reason, or is under duress, threat, coercion, or force. Inferred under circumstances in which consent is not clear, including but not limited to the absence of an individual saying no or stop, or the existence of a prior or current relationship or sexual activity. Uh, rape by a spouse is defined by your spouse threatening or using force or violence to um, have intercourse with you, which is not actually intercourse. I want to note that it is rape. The term sexual assault is any type of sexual contact or behavior that occurs without explicit consent of the recipient, including but not limited to forced sexual intercourse, forcible sodomy, child molestation, child sexual abuse, incest, fondling, and all attempts to complete any of the aforementioned acts. Um, the age of consent in Oklahoma is 16. Therefore, it is generally legal for a 16-year-old to have sex with anyone um, their age or older than them. Um, sex between people who are 15 to 17 years old is generally lawful, um, but there are a variety of, sex, of exceptions that do make this illegal because, um, again, this is a 16-year-old um, and a minor, and anyone who is um, has a large age gap with that person probably should not be having sex with them, and I might consider that to be rape. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, I think we can move forward in our discussion. Um, I just wanted to provide those legal terms and to make a point about how the definitions of words change over time and how we view words as a society and their meaning also changes over time. Speaking of time, let's make like Doc Brown and go back several thousand years to around 2000 BC, where we see the earliest incidences of recorded law surrounding sexual violence come to fruition. Yeah, so <clears throat> roughly around... Uh around like 2000 BC, we have the Code of Hammurabi, which is one of the earliest sets of written laws where we begin to see a tangible trend of concern for the rights of victims. However, this trend quickly diminished when society began neglecting victims and rushing to punish the offender to equate the rape of a virgin as being property damage against her father. For a long time, property crimes were the standing way to prosecute the rape of a woman. The word itself derives from the Latin word and pardon me for pronouncing it probably incorrectly, but um, raper, for those of you that speak Latin, I, I apologize, um, or in other words, seize. So it wasn't until the 11th and 12th centuries that rape began to be seen more as a violent sexual crime against the victim. And next, let's <clears throat> look into Roman law. So with Rome, there were essentially two social classes. You have the plebeians, which were the lower class, and the patricians, which were the higher class. Over time, the plebeians became tired of being oppressed by the patricians, so they enacted the laws of the Twelve Tables, which focused on civil law and rights for the individual. If we reflect back upon the Code of Hammurabi, this system seeks to punish the lower social classes more frequently than the higher class. So the Twelve Tables laws were the plebeians' version of trying to gain equity within their society. <clears throat> okay, so now let's fast forward to more modern-day English law. So I think that in early modern English law, many people have heard 
especially those that are familiar with early English history, of the rule of thumb, which states that you could beat your wife for correctional purposes with an object no wider than the width of your thumb. A lot of early laws, particularly English laws, were based out of Christianity and more specifically Catholicism. So what was considered sacrilegious or amoral could also be considered illegal. The problem with many current laws is that they stem from religious texts. This inevitably alters the way that crimes are prosecuted because the thought process behind them is not secular. This directly opposes the idea that in the United States, church and state are separate. Through this lens, as it stands, the right of the accused to be considered innocent until proven guilty directly negates the right of the victim to be believed and to have their case prosecuted without any bias. Having laws which are inherently biased due to their faith-based roots colors the way that survivors are treated by their governing body from the very beginning. <clears throat> Domestic violence and sexual assault are often linked together in legislation, statistics, and in real life. So we wanted to make specific note of this because it can be extremely difficult to talk about one and not the other. Um, this is largely due to the fact that both crimes are perpetrated to ensure or enforce a power and control dynamic within the relationship, right? So sexual assault is about power and control and not about sexuality. I wanted to make that very clear. Um, they are also linked together in legislation because domestic violence is more likely to be and more often spotlighted among the general public as opposed to sexual assault. This unfortunate truth stems from a variety of reasons, uh, mostly cultural. A good example of a common reason that sexual assault is not discussed as often or as in depth as domestic violence is because sexual assault is much more taboo and controversial in American culture than domestic violence. So due to this fact, some of the laws may appear to only benefit one demographic of people. Um, however, most of the bills put forth can actually benefit both um, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, I wanted to go into some history to kind of give context for legislation. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about second wave feminism. Um, second wave feminism started in the early 1960s and went through about the late 1980s in the United States, depending on which historian you talk to. During this movement, some of the major goals and focal points of feminists were about enforcing equality among gender and stopping and preventing discrimination and more specifically in the workplace. So they brought to the forefront of the movement issues like domestic violence. For the first time in years, women who were previously stuck at home while their husbands were in the war entered the workplace and upon arrival faced immediate discrimination. So they began the fight for equal rights, both in the workplace and at home. Um, I just wanted to give some context as to why we see such a boom in legislation being passed during this time in the United States. Um, I also want to discuss a little bit about cases and charges. Um, so like how cases go and what variables may affect them. Uh, more specifically, I want to talk about what factors can affect the way reports are made, what charges are made, and how cases are prosecuted, or more likely not prosecuted. A great example of what factors might affect the way a case goes is actually Deshaun Watson's lawyer, who we briefly mentioned earlier. So Rusty Harden is a lawyer most recognized for working with athletes who have been accused of crimes which are sexual in nature. I find this interesting because athletes usually have six to seven figure salaries, so that means they can afford really good legal representation. Um, 
Mr. Hardin has also been the legal representative for Calvin Murphy. Uh, Calvin Murphy was charged with three counts of aggravated sexual assault of a child and three counts of indecency with a child. Calvin Murphy is someone who was able to use his fame, status, and money to win his case. He went as far as to say that his accusers were motivated by money. The jury eventually acquitted Calvin Murphy on all of his charges in about two hours. So you can see here why it would be extremely hard for survivors to get the justice they are seeking because of people like Calvin Murphy who make statements about his accusers like the one that we made. And additionally, with lawyers like Rusty Hardin who are representing these people who are serial offenders of sexual crimes. Um, this is a great example of the way that people are able to use their privilege and status to um, basically put themselves above the law and they don't really feel that they're going to have a lot of um, consequences for their actions and this is why. Um, athletes are a notable part of the demographic of people who are accused of sexual assault um, and they often win or simply settle the cases because they have the characteristics of a desirable client that is need to, needed to make things like this go away or their accusers have the characteristics of those whose cases aren't likely to be believed. So again, people um, who might be impoverished or houseless or LGBTQ, people of color, women, all of these things are factors that greatly affect how they um, are treated by our justice system. Who is essentially most likely to be targeted as a victim? So this discussion about what can affect the type of cases that are that are charged and prosecuted leads me to my next question about who is likely to be targeted as a victim of sexual assault. I think that we have to start by considering what types of people will not be believed or supported by law enforcement specifically. Factors like race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and immigration status greatly affect the likelihood that someone from a certain demographic group is going to be targeted. People within the LGBTQ plus community, people who are experiencing homelessness, as Timber previously said, and um, this is black indigenous. black indigenous people of color. That's uh, B-I-P-O-C. Okay. Oh, yeah. So let me see. People within the LGBTQ plus community. Um, oh, no, let's start that over. As Timber previously stated, people within the LGBTQ plus community, um, people experiencing homelessness, and Black Indigenous people of color are all examples of groups of people who are most likely to be discriminated against by law enforcement and medical professionals. We could certainly speak more about this, but that would be an entire other podcast. The point is that these people face more barriers in their cases than the average white cis hetero male would. It's definitely true when people say that money is power and those with power are the ones getting acquitted. We can see a clear example of how the stereotypes and fetishization of minority groups are directly killing them when we discuss the Atlanta spa shooting from about a week ago. We have a white man who is described as being sex addicted in multiple news articles, who shot and killed eight people who are mostly Asian women to remove his temptation the way the, that the media has been talking about this shooting is, is a direct reflection on how perpetrators who commit sexually violent crimes are treated within American society and within the criminal justice system itself. I think this incident could bring forth many different and yet connect um, various other conversations about the fetishization of Asian women and targeting sex workers specifically, as well as 
just the working class in general. Okay, so what constitutes a good report? I think that we have to discuss reports more in depth and what types of reports are the most likely to be taken seriously or even just to be followed up with. I think that we also have to discuss the types of people whose reports are most likely to be followed up with and have action taken. Um, I think this is something you are very familiar with in working with clients who have experienced sexual assault. Um, we have a fair amount of interaction with law enforcement simply due to the nature of our work. So we're actually able to see firsthand how interactions with survivors and um, detectives or law enforcement go. Um, but not everyone chooses to report to police because not every person will benefit from these interactions or they have their own personal reasons for not reporting and that's their choice and we support that. Um, but for those that do report and want to push for justice for the perpetrator, the investigative process for cases involving sexual assault can be extremely difficult for a variety of reasons. Victims are often treated like suspects or liars, which does not benefit their case and makes it more likely that the perpetrator will not be brought to justice. Um, one thing that is extremely vital in reports of sexual assault is the narrative, where the survivor is able to tell their story um, and their account of the incident. However, it can be almost impossible to give an accurate account of the assault right after it occurs. This, oh. this is definitely due to a thing we call trauma brain. When our brain goes into fight or flight, this is all due to a thing we call trauma brain. When our brain goes into fight or flight mode, our ability to rationalize and think clearly is cut off and our amygdala completely takes over in order for us to survive. Our ability to create and store memories in the midst of this trauma is non-existent. Think about it like this. Say you have a white box and inside that box is a blank puzzle. And as you begin to examine the pieces, you start to realize that there's some pieces missing because your dog ate them. And then you also notice that there's some pieces from in there from a puzzle that you didn't finish a couple weeks ago. And then your kid comes zooming by and knocks the puzzle out of your hand and pieces go flying everywhere. But despite all of those inconveniences, I want you to put the puzzle together accurately without a misstep. Do you think you could do that, Timber? Absolutely not. That sounds extremely difficult. So as time passes, the brain is able to heal and eventually recover those memories. Right. And this is something not often considered by law enforcement, taking reports of sexual assault. Um, but this is a little hypocritical because when an officer is involved in a situation um, that causes them to discharge their firearm, or if they make that decision themselves, it is common for there to be a policy in place that allows officers to get three REM rim cycles of sleep before giving a statement about the incident. So if they can enforce this knowledge within their own community, why are they not extending this grace to the victims of crime that they serve every day? It doesn't make sense to me. So Milo, I'm interested in kind of the politics of believability and your anecdotal experience with that. Um, I work more with survivors of domestic violence, but I see a similar trend in experience is of people who experience sexual violence. So in all honesty, Timber, there really isn't a clear way to answer your question because the patriarchy has instilled victim-blaming behavior within us from our very early stages of life. I mean, the rate of false reporting for sexual assault crimes is between 2 and 10%, which isn't higher than that of any other crime. Say you have an individual who has dementia or Alzheimer's, and at some point in their youth or adolescence, they were sexually assaulted, and due to their decreased cognitive function within the HPA axis, they come to you and tell you this thing happened to them as if it were yesterday. This person could be reliving their trauma day after day because of a disease that they have. 
is that disease their fault? Does it mean that they're lying about what occurred? Yeah, and I want to make specific note of this because a lot of um, excuses or backlash that people give um, about false reports, it assumes that false reports are brought forth by people who are lying. Um, and that's often not the case. Um, when we have people that come forward who want to make a report or that tell us they have reported you know, to law enforcement, but their case wasn't taken seriously because they lied about uh, drug use. They forgot to tell the officer when making the report um, that they also had just, you know, done heroin or marijuana or whatever, you know, their drug of choice may be. A, why is that relevant? It's not. The crime still happened. It is it's still a crime on that person. They did not deserve what happened to them, regardless of, of drug use playing a part or any type of substance use at all. Right. And I believe um, in that statistic of false reports, it also includes people who recant, um, which is uh, can be done by a victim for a variety of reasons. Um, they could be pressured to by friends or family, or they could uh, be trying to minimize the situation, which is a trauma response that we see a lot. Um, but I wanted to talk about some more local statistics um, because we're here in Oklahoma. So I'm going to talk about some data that was collected in Payne County, Oklahoma. Fewer than 5% of rape cases were prosecuted in Payne County from 2017 to 2019, despite 194, 194 sexual assaults being recorded in the county by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation during that period. I'm sorry, did you say 5% of 194? That is a very low number, and I'm going to get to that in just a moment, actually. Um, in criminal court, prosecutors have a high burden of proof to convince a judge or jury that a crime happened beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, Payne County District Attorney Laura Austin Thomas said in sexual assault cases, most, most often the defense leans on consent, with lawyers arguing that the defendant and accuser engaged in consensual acts. So this is kind of relevant for people who may choose to have a SANE exam. Um, a SANE exam would indicate the presence of DNA, but often defense in these cases is that it was consensual. Sometimes a SANE exam may not be beneficial for those people. In criminal court, prosecutors have a high burden of proof to convince a judge or jury a crime happened beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, Payne County District Attorney Laura Austin Thomas said in sexual assault cases, most often the defense leans on consent, with lawyers arguing the defendant and accuser engaged in sexual consensual acts. She said even in cases with what she sees as overwhelming evidence, juries may still acquit a defendant um, because the defense is based largely on whether or not the sexual activity was consensual or not. And also consent cannot be determined by a SANE exam because a SANE exam would only indicate the presence of DNA. And so if you argue if it's consensual, then it would make sense that there would be DNA. But if that's, if, if her whole argument is that it essentially leans on the basis of consent and a jury is likely to still acquit based on that, doesn't that kind of shed a little bit of light on kind of society's lack of understanding of the basis of consent? Yes, I absolutely agree that as a society, we don't talk about consent um, in an extremely accurate way. There's a lot of information um, that I've even been presented with since working here about sexual assault and what 
sexual assault can consist of um, because sexual assault doesn't always result in a violent incident. Sexual assault can be the absence of a yes. Sexual assault can be nagging, making you feel guilty, coercion, and those types of things. So I don't think that as a public, we have a really good understanding of sexual assault, which could play a role in why people are not being prosecuted. Um, Laura Austin Thomas also said those kinds of crimes, even with the best evidence, even if the victim was beaten back in blue and you have overwhelming evidence, those are the most difficult crimes to get a jury to convict on. Um, so earlier I mentioned there were 194 cases uh, filed in Payne County. Only eight adult cases have been fully prosecuted. Okay, so eight out of 194. Four were charged as rape. Three were charged as sexual battery. And one was charged as forcible oral sodomy. But then of those four rape charges, only one resulted in a rape conviction. So we brought that number from 194 down to one. Okay. Um, the other three cases took lesser charges and were offered plea deals by the Payne County's district attorney office. Right. So let's take another stroll through time, shall we, as we highlight some milestones within legislation that encompass sexual assault and kind of begin to mitigate some of the issues that survivors begin to face within the criminal justice system. So starting in 1980, this is where we see the first Crime Victims Bill of Rights passed. And then in 1984, we have the Victims of Crime Act, which established the Crime Victims Fund, which is a prime funding source for victim services agencies like the YWCA all across the nation. Then in 1988, we have a case <clears throat> before the court, um, State v. Siski. So this is the first case on record to allow mm -hmm. the use of expert testimony to explain the behavior and mental state of an adult rape victim. The testimony is used to help negate all of those why questions that individuals like to use so much, such as why did the survivor not report the assault immediately? Do you know why that question is relevant in police investigations, Timber? Um, no, Milo, I don't. Please tell me why. It isn't. Oh. Then in 2001, we have the first National Sexual Assault Awareness Month campaign being launched. Through this campaign, teal was solidified as the color associated with sexual assault awareness, and teal ribbons became a symbol of sexual assault awareness and prevention. Fun fact, the first ever completely virtual sexual assault awareness month campaign took place last April of 2020. Thank you, COVID. And in 2002, we have the launch of the World Report on Violence and Health. The collective reports provide an overview of the issue of sexual violence, analyzed risk factors and the impact on victims, and described how a public health approach could be used as a preventative tactic. Since its publication, over 30 governments around the world have used the report as a framework to assess the issue of violence and determine how best to prevent it. Additionally, the CDC took steps to treat sexual violence as a preventable issue by studying the prevalence and using the socio-ecological model as their prevention model. Then in 2003, we have the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA, being passed. This was the first civil law created to stop sexual assault against incarcerated persons. 
Then in 2006, we have the Me Too movement being founded by Tarana Burke. And in 2009, we see the first ever presidential proclamation to declare April as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. This encouraged individuals to develop policies at their workplaces, schools, and to have conversations about sexual assault with their friends and family and prioritize sexual assault prevention within their communities. And in 2011, the CDC, as part of their prevention efforts, released the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, or the NISVS. This was another key report that highlighted the importance of prevention within sexual violence. In 2013, we see the Violence Against Women's Act reauthorized. With this reauthorization came expansions to address gaps in services for victims of sexual assault on Native American reservations specifically. It also included modernized protections for immigrant women and anti-discrimination provisions to protect LGBTQ survivors from being denied access to services. And in 2016, Congress enacted the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights Act. This law guarantees basic rights for, assault, for sexual assault survivors in federal cases, which include sex crimes that occur across state lines, in the military, in a federal prison, or on land operated by the federal government or tribal nations. This bill essentially gives rape survivors the rights to a free forensic medical exam, to have their rape kit preserved free of charge for the full statute of limitations or 20 years, the right to receive written notification within 60 days of the intended destruction or disposal of the same kit, to have their kits preserved from being disposed of upon written request, and to be informed of any result from a sexual assault evidence collection kit, including DNA matches and toxicology reports. That again is assuming that they are being tested um, and most often they are not being tested. Yeah, the whole backlog of, of, of kits that could be a whole nother podcast in and of itself. Um, and then moving into 2017, again, we have the Me Too movement gaining traction and essentially going viral. With the energy surrounding the movement galvanized states to enact new laws urging companies to examine and revamp their current policies and procedures and enticed individuals to have hard conversations with their friends and loved ones about what sexual assault encompasses and what accountability truly looks like. And in 2018, we saw House Bill 1007, also known as Lauren's Law, make it through the House before ultimately dying on the Senate floor. This bill would have mandated consent and healthy relationship education for schools across our state. However, because this bill was maybe too direct for most people, instead, Senate Bill 926 was passed the following year in 2019. So with the passing of Senate Bill 926, this requires any class or program that discusses sexual activity to include information on consent. Let's break this down a little further, shall we? House Bill 1007, has a full paragraph statement essentially outlining the bigger picture by trying to address consent and healthy relationships on all levels for students and faculty and ultimately would have a total budget impact of $14,400 for the state of Oklahoma. And let's compare that to Senate Bill 926 that literally consists of two sentences and highlights the fact that with this bill, there is no impact to the current budget or other state appropriations. 
I'm sorry, but where's the lesson on accountability in any of that? And of course, let's fast forward to March 8th of 2021, where we see the House of Representatives Bill 1620, also known as the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act of 2021, introduced to the House. And on March 17th, the bill passed the House and has moved on to the Senate, where it currently awaits consideration. So what is the Violence Against Women's Act, you may ask? So in 1994, Congress passed the most comprehensive package of federal victims' rights legislation in its history as a part of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. Um, this act specifically includes the Violence Against Women Act, which is a landmark in legislation that has been enacted to empower survivors throughout their journey of healing. Um, Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, provides funding for response services to agencies like the YWCA um, to survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking. VAWA is a huge part of what makes it possible to provide survivors with support, advocacy, resources, and most importantly, an unwavering hand to guide them through the twists and turns of this thing we call the justice system. So what kinds of things can you do to help spread awareness about our prevention efforts? Well, you can get involved within your community and volunteer at places like the YWCA. You can be an active bystander by educating others every chance you have to do so safely. Use your voice and your privilege to empower and support those who, whose voices are being actively silenced. For those who prefer a less direct approach, you can share a post on social media and donate to organizations like the YWCA. And of course, do your own research about these issues instead of making that survivor or tokenized individual do the emotional labor for you. For survivors of sexual violence, the substance within their story is not enough to elicit any type of consequence as of yet. So it is important that within activism especially, our words and actions coincide consistently in order to smoothly pave the way for real change to happen. Thank you for bearing with us today and listening to us spill the tea on this lovely Tuesday. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope you learned about the legislative history of sexual assault. Um, and additionally, I want to provide the 24-hour sexual assault hotline for the YWCA. That is 405-943-7273. Again, that number is 405-943-7273. Seven, three.